The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. You'd worry them here to make troubles for you. Uh, no, no, of course not. Captain, do you really want to start off this friendship with a lie? Okay, fine. The truth? A young man was murdered, and I don't want politics to get in the way of catching the bastard who did it. I murdered a patient. Very Russian. Rest assured, I do not wish to interfere in your case. I'm as far from the political animal as one can get. Hey, did you hear that the Russians are sending one of their own to ride along with us? Are you kidding me? Vasily Zhirov. He's part of the Russian Diplomatic Security Service. The red Heat is coming here? So a Russian? Yeah, Ivan Drago's in the house. I hear those guys are like automatons, strictly business. Both Boris is coming, could Natasha be far behind? <laughs> it's gonna be trouble for the big moose and little squirrel. <laughs> it's so... It's, he's right behind me. Yeah. I know you. You're Richard Castle, no? Yes. The other is mine! I love your books. Many of flights to Moscow have been kept company by Derek Storm. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, March 24th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. For years now, the Western media has been in a steady mindset of Russian to conclusions, based on their own fake narratives. That was a theme we last sarcastically framed that way in a show with Salim Mansour back in April of 2017. Now at that time, of course, the fake news, state news, was accusing then-President Donald Trump of some kind of collusion with the Russians, which was subsequently demonstrated to be a complete fabrication. But given the ongoing fake narratives about events in Ukraine, and to the outright censorship of other than deep state propaganda, it's clear that our own Western politicians do not want us to hear anything the Russians may have to say about anything. So I'm sure that there will be those who might be convinced, based on our show today, that we ourselves are doing something worse than (laughs) Russian to conclusions, but instead are doing what they previously accused Trump of doing. Russian to collusion. Which is why we will be Russian to start our show today, right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. And speaking of Russians, and please pardon my Russian puns, but it's one of the ways that I have to deal with all the ridiculous propaganda about how crazy Putin is and how he supposedly represents some kind of big threat to the free world and to democracy. I thought you might be interested in hearing some different views on the subject. Views that align far more with reality than with the hysterical narratives that we're seeing in our state-paid media. And one of those views that was forwarded to my attention recently was that of a very famous Russian, none other than Alexander Solzhenitsyn. 
At least I thought he was relatively famous until I mentioned his name to a few people with whom I've been talking about this, and they didn't know who he was. So, just for the record, a quick who's who from Wikipedia on Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Now, he was a Russian novelist, one of the most famous Soviet dissidents. He was an outspoken critic of communism and helped to raise global awareness of political repression in the Soviet Union, then the USSR, and in particular in the Gulag system. He was born into a family that defied the Soviet anti-religious campaign of the 1920s, sound familiar? And remained devout members of the Russian Orthodox Church. While still young, Solzhenitsyn lost his faith in Christianity and became a firm believer in both atheism and Marxist-Leninism. In his later life, he gradually became a philosophically-minded Eastern Orthodox Christian as a result of his experience in prison and in the camps. While serving as a captain in the Red Army during World War II, Solzhenitsyn was arrested and sentenced to eight years in the Gulag and then to internal exile for criticizing Soviet leader Joseph Stalin in a private letter. As a result of the Khrushchev thaw, Solzhenitsyn was released and exonerated. After he had returned to the Christian faith of his childhood, he pursued writing novels about repressions in the Soviet Union and his experiences. Following the removal of Khrushchev from power, the Soviet authorities attempted to discourage him from continuing to write. Solzhenitsyn continued to work on further novels and their publication in other countries, including The Cancer Ward in 1968, August 1914 in 1971, and The Gulag Archipelago in 1973, the publication of which outraged the Soviet authorities. In 1974, Solzhenitsyn lost his Soviet citizenship and was flown to West Germany. In 1976, he moved with his family to the United States where he continued to write. And in 1990, shortly before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, his citizenship was restored. And four years later, he returned to Russia where he remained until his death in 2008. He was awarded the 1970 Nobel Prize in Literature for the ethical force with which he has pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature and the Gulag Archipelago was a highly influential work that amounted to a head-on challenge to the Soviet state and sold tens of millions of copies, end quote. Well, here's what the infamous critic of Russian dictatorship, Solzhenitsyn, had to say about Vladimir Putin, of all people, and I quote, Vladimir Putin inherited a ransacked and bewildered country with a poor and demoralized people, and he started to do what was possible, a slow and gradual restoration. These efforts were not noticed nor appreciated immediately. In any case, one is hard-pressed to find examples in history when steps by one country to restore its strength were met favorably by other governments." Wow, well, not exactly a condemnation by a long shot, is it? And I should let you know that when it comes to the gulag system of Russia, my own family had plenty of direct experience with that political phenomenon. Many of my aunts, uncles, and cousins, all just one generation or more older than me, literally spent time in Russian gulags. And my grandfather on my mother's side was starved to death along with millions of others in Ukraine. After having been taken by force from his own farm and family in Hungary by the Russians to work the fields of Ukraine. 
I remember whenever my mother would cite letters that her family received from her father during his years in Ukraine, her father would comment on how friendly and kind the Ukrainian people were, at least until they got orders from state authorities or were otherwise manipulated by political interests. Suddenly all the good people became obedient robots, abandoning all the humanity they previously displayed. Sound familiar? Despite this history, I find myself quite unable to quote-unquote hate Russians as some of the major social media platforms are actually encouraging people to do. To what end? It wasn't a people or a race or an ethnicity that caused the Holocaust and killed anybody. It was an idea. The cult of collectivism. Hatred of identifiable groups is purely a collectivist phenomenon of the left, since all things left are based on group identity politics. And I've learned enough in my life to understand that this way of thinking and its necessitated ideology of force, coercion, and control is the real enemy of humanity and of freedom. That is what ultimately murdered my grandfather and all the millions who were starved along with him. Those infected with any variant of collectivist thinking become political and social viruses, utterly poisonous to individual freedom, and that also alter the political and social DNA of an individualist society and even of the individual sovereign nation, all for the greatest of all collective tyrannies, globalism itself. How ironic that the philosopher I admire and respect the most happens to have been Russian. Born as Alice Rosenbaum in St. Petersburg, Russia, upon moving to America, she became famously known to the world under her pen name of Ayn Rand. Her works should be required reading and studied in every educational institution in a free society. The world has routinely experienced tyranny in an infinite number of forms and yet still doesn't understand its nature. Ayn Rand did. As with Soltanetsin. It would appear that those who understand freedom best are those who have experienced life without freedom on a scale unimaginable to most. Now, with all eyes being forcibly directed towards Putin and the Russians being the ultimate villains in Ukraine, the single narrative being pushed by the usual suspects from the Biden to Trudeau camp and all of the others is continually being shown to be fake, which is why they're now increasingly relying on censorship and the prohibition of any opposition, kind of like what's happening in Ukraine today, with the banning of any political opposition and the arbitrary arrests of any bloggers or online content producers who are telling the truth to the public. And it's interesting, you know, during a war or conflict, even the truth is regarded as propaganda especially by the liars, but sometimes even by those seeking the truth, given the onslaught of information, misinformation, and disinformation. This is where a solid grounding in epistemology can prove to be very helpful in separating the wheat from the chaff. So, to broaden our own understanding of events in Ukraine, coming up next is an edited segment taken from Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson's interview with Lee Harding on March 16. Harding is a reporter and writer for several news publications, including the Epoch Times. And in his conversation with Laura Lynn, they talked about a lot of things, like from Ukraine to even the recent Batman movie, which was kind of interesting in its own right. But at the time of their discussion, Laura Lynn was actually in the United States accompanying the Truckers' Freedom Convoy there. So here's the critical part of their discussion on Ukraine and Putin, about which I'll have more to add when we return. 
With regards to the conflict in Ukraine, I had a friend who stopped by not that long ago and he said, so is Putin a good guy or a bad guy? And I said, he's neither. And I don't know if we can assign uh, a moral high ground really to the West or to Russia. It's just a whole series of events of competing interests. Uh, You know, Putin was saying to the French prime minister, look, we know we can't beat NATO, but NATO keeps moving east. We're a nuclear power too. So he says, your leaders are going to drag you into a war and there will be no winners. And that's pretty much what he said. He, and so, uh, you know, the people that are comparing Putin to Hitler and all this stuff, I don't know if they well, really what do you, what know do you what say to the, What do you say to the people say, well, he's a murderer, he's KGB, he's... Yeah, and Ukraine has become a hive of corruption in a lot of ways. And I mean, and I do believe there's been a lot of Soros money and different things where it's gone to Ukraine. Uh, sometimes we find that there's some schemes with money that goes to uh, NGOs in some of these places, and then it comes back to the politicians. So it's almost like our tax dollars are being used as a form of um, almost money laundering through foreign aid. So so when I talk about this, I'm not talking about whether it's a moral war, uh, whether, you know, because we really don't know. There's some things we know are happening, and then there's what they call the fog of war. And it's not until the dust settles that you know what really has happened so i do have a concern that this is going to escalate and then it could expand far beyond uh and And that's scary isn't it i mean well it is now there was a a lecture that i saw and by vladimir posner and it's called how the united states created vladimir putin this was someone who was born in france raised in the united states he's born in 1934 so he's not a young man and uh, then he moved to Russia when he was 19, and he did some broadcasts for Russia Today, and then Ted Koppel on ABC used to have him as a regular guest on Nightline, and so he would talk about the Russian side, and he had some very interesting things to say about uh, how we got to where we are, and he talked about the chronology of the whole thing, and he said there were assurances that were made from the West to the Soviet Union that NATO would not expand eastward if Germany reunited. So with those assurances, this happens. Before the end of the decade though, they had taken in Poland and uh, the Czech Republic and Hungary into NATO. They've expanded to some other areas since. Then NATO bombed Yugoslavia, uh, taking sides in that, and Yugoslavia fragmented into a number of nations. So Putin comes along around 2000 and what happens then is he tries to reach out to Europe. Now, for better or worse, Putin was a graduate of the World Economic Forum class, uh, the same one that, well, a number of people were in. I think in that initial one, Tony Blair was in it uh, as well. You had the uh, German chancellor later, uh, Angela Merkel. So he was really seeing himself as being a European, and he believed it was more natural for Russia to gravitate towards Europe. So he said, could we join the European Union could we and could we join NATO now with NATO they said you know you're gonna have to take a number and wait in line basically and he wanted more respect than that uh, and then with the EU uh, you know it was the same thing They're like well and also you know you're a pretty big country and it would sort of throw things off balance so he had thrown out an olive branch and it wasn't received so in 2007 there was a meeting of the G20 in Munich there was a recent article where it said, did Putin's 
2007 Munich speech predict the Ukraine crisis. So imagine Putin was saying the same things in 2007 that he was you know, 15 years later. So he says uh, NATO expansion represents a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust. And we have the right to ask against whom is this expansion intended? And what happened to the assurances our Western partners made after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact? So one of the things that Posner says is uh, he challenges the, his audience. He says, you know, I actually paid people to look at the New York Times, every article on Russia between 2015 and 2017. He says, I could not find a single one that was positive. You know, there's lots of positive things about Russia. You could talk about Russian ballet, Russian theater. He even mentioned ice cream. But no, everything about Russia had to be bad. And part of this was because there was this narrative that Russia was pro-Trump and they were in collusion and so and so then as a part of that you had to make Russia look bad so in 2008 NATO told the Ukraine and uh, Georgia that uh, that they would be welcome to become NATO members well that was you know Putin's just made this big speech NATO doesn't care and Putin he talked to Biden he said you know we you you got to give us an assurance and what NATO has said is look we're not going to make promises to Russia about who's going to join us and who isn't so you know absent of that assurance this conflict has gone forward there's another person I follow uh, I listen to sometimes and and his name is Pastor Paul Begley and he has a fellow on there called Mike from around the world now this guy's a bit of a nebulous figure we don't know exactly how he knows what he knows, but I've listened to him enough that it, it rings true what he says, and it confirms some of the things I've found from other sources. One of the things he said was, and he seems to have some inside connections in US military, but he said, uh, when you look at live streams from Ukraine, he said the, uh, the American um, intelligence agencies had actually looked at these live streams, and there was only two of them that were legitimate. The rest of them, when they compared the frames to past broadcasts, it was the, the same as previous live streams. And uh, there was only two that were actually authentic and showing things that were going on out of more than 400. That's propaganda. And he basically said, you can't really trust what you're getting for sure. And, and don't be really strident on uh, one side or another, one news source or another on this because if you're very sure of yourself and you're spreading all of this completely certain of what you know uh, when you don't know it you know you may feel bad later this is just part of a larger game of chess really for the whole world and I'm, the West isn't guiltless either. One of the people that I tune into, and I'll just say straight up, confess it right here, is Tucker Carlson. I tune in to see what he says almost every night. And if we've been traveling, then I get it on Siri so that I can hear his take. I find this man to be credible. I find him to be a truth seeker. And I've seen where he wrestles with issues, but he presents an honest view of the situation. 
And this is important for us to all question what is truly going on in the labs in the Ukraine? And is it true that there are labs? Because you will see that some people have called that a conspiracy theory. Yet now we know it's fully admitted to. So take a listen to this, everyone, and then I'll uh, get your take on all of this. Here's what Tulsi Gabbard actually said that made Mitt Romney accuse her of betraying her own country. Watch. Here are the undeniable facts. There are 25 to 30 U.S. funded bio labs in Ukraine. According to the U.S. government, these bio labs are conducting research on dangerous pathogens. Ukraine is in an active war zone with widespread bombing, artillery and shelling. And these facilities, even in the best of circumstances, could easily be compromised and release these deadly pathogens. Yeah, she hates our country because she's worried that a pathogen might escape from a bio lab and hurt people. There's no recent precedent for that, so she's clearly listening to Alex Jones too much, and she's treasonous. Actually, everything that Tulsi Gabbard said, as you know, is true. It's not a Republican issue, it's not a Democrat issue, it's a factual issue. And even in war, truth is a defense. In fact, it's the only defense. Is it true? And in a free country, you can speak the truth. That right can never be taken away, or else it's not a free country. But Tulsi Gabbard addressed, and only addressed, the danger that innocent people could die because these weapons, apparently these pathogens, these agents, exist in Ukraine. She didn't blame it on Russia. She didn't blame anybody. She just said, this is a thing. Unsecured bioweapons in a war zone are a bad idea. That's not reasonable now? That's treason? Reason isn't part of the way people are thinking now. Everybody in leadership has completely lost the ability to think beyond the next tweet. Who is thinking about tomorrow or next month or 20 years from now? Not one person. And anyone who tries is an agent of Putin. Now to a story of Russian disinformation that has been quickly embraced and amplified by some in America's right-wing media. When State Department Undersecretary Victoria Nuland confirmed this week that there was bio-research going on in Ukraine, critics say that Tucker Carlson of Fox News took those remarks out of context. Uh, now you see the Chinese government kind of openly re repeating Russian propaganda, uh, for example, about the supposed American biolabs and in Ukraine. This Russian misinformation uh, about biolabs in Ukraine, uh, people on the Trump right who are actually parroting Russian propaganda every day and every night. <laughs> These supposed biolabs. Well, the U.S. government says they have biolabs and told us under oath that they're worried about the contents of these biolabs, which they failed to secure, might get into the wrong hands. Uh, one of the things that Mike from around the world has said was that uh, the day before, uh, there were, like the Putin had gotten a report about ethnic cleansing and that they uh, made a move there in Ukraine the day before it was supposed to happen. So uh, they knew things were ramping up and they were going to get rid of the Russian population. Now, can I prove that? No, we don't know. We just really don't know. And so we have to have a certain amount of reserve, not call people traitors and misinformation agents for uh, saying things like what Tulsi Gabbard said. No, Putin's right. He says, why is NATO expanding? When you've got all these countries, you've got Poland in it, uh, you've got Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, 
they're just moving right to the border. So he's like, well, it, it's, uh, and you don't want me in your club. So clearly this is uh, arranged at us. You know, when there was the whole thing going on after 9-11, Putin had actually phoned President Bush and said, we know you're going to need to have a military presence to deal with this. And we're going to accept that for what it is. And we're not going to counter you here. And so, I mean, there, there was lots of goodwill in the beginning. And here we are 20 years later. Uh, yes, Putin was KGB. I think he's still KG. He's KG, all right. And sure, I mean, there's reports, and even this mic from around the world, where he's offed a lot of people that were a threat to him. And this is the other thing, too, if you look at Putin's motivation, is if, you, if you're too weak for too long, there's somebody who might do you in. And, you know, we might, the devil we know might be uh, not as bad as the devil we don't. Lee Harding's historical narrative was very much like the one expressed by Professor Salim Mansour on our own show back on March 3rd, which we titled Ukraine in the Fog of War. And while I found his overall narrative to coincide with what I've discovered to be generally true, I have to take issue with some of the concerns he raised, and those issues involved moral judgments, and also reflected attitudes that I've heard from many a commentator, including even Tucker Carlson recently, who this past Sunday referred to Putin's actions in Ukraine as being quote-unquote wrong, despite being understood to be justifiable. Now to me that's a contradiction. If something is truly justified, then that implies that justice is at play, and that it is therefore moral. And this raises the issue of something known as retaliatory force, about which I'll have more to say in a moment. But Harding described Putin as being neither good nor bad, and that claiming some kind of moral high ground was not possible. That all we were seeing was just a series of events of competing interests. In other words, Harding was speaking within a moral vacuum, unwilling to make a moral judgment, apparently out of some fear of being proven to be wrong or feeling bad should that have been the case. When I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about whether it's a moral war because there are some things we know are happening and then there is the fog of war, he says. And to say, quote-unquote, just a series of competing interests is to ignore the nature of those interests. Shooting at people who have differing interests is not competition. It is a war. Is every interest legitimate and justifiable? Are the interests of those who want to depopulate the planet something that should even be entertained for a second? Can't trust the info. Don't be sure of yourself or you'll feel bad later, you know? Well, if your feelings are the priority over what you perceive to be the truth, then how can you ever be trusted, let alone trust yourself? I can tell you this. Whenever I go down some proverbial rabbit hole, quote-unquote, I tend to feel pretty bad and uncertain about things, and I doubt almost everything that I thought I knew before, especially when I, what I discover is really bad news on its face or contradicts something that I thought I knew. And if I'm not sure about anything, the way I look at it is, well, what's the problem with saying so? As I've repeated many times before, don't be afraid of being wrong, because if you are, you'll never be able to discover what is right, because even when you do, you'll never trust it as being right. Because there's always a possibility, no matter how low the probability, that some fact or event might surface to undermine your previously held truth. To which I say, so what? At least now, you again have 
quote-unquote, the truth within your vision. Ah, but wait, you never know. Maybe some other fact or event might come to your attention that reverses the previous one. So you better not say anything, right? Ever. Then you'll be safe. Do you really want to go through life that way? Because if you do, then all you've done is step from the fog of war to the fog of daily life. Remember that description of how most people live in a state of being semi-embalmed that we discussed recently? So apparently, morality or judgment cannot be exercised unless you can be 100% certain of all the pertinent facts. Well, I got news for you, not even a legitimate court of justice can be that infallible. And often, innocent people are incarcerated because the known facts at the time made them the victim of circumstantial evidence, or worse, because someone bore false witness against them. Yet everything Harding said about the history of Ukraine and of Putin's past actions, the things that we know that happened, would speak to the fact that Putin is completely justified in what he has been doing. He's clearly been lied to for years by the Western powers and NATO. And so in no way can he morally trust them. Is it any wonder? Would you? One thing's certain, our own governments have been completely immoral and unjustified in everything they've been doing for the past three years and beyond. The daily spewing of outright demonstrable and see-it-with-your-own-eyes lies is all that any rational individual would ever need to never trust anything they say ever again, ever about anything. They lie about climate change. They lie about COVID. They lie about two-week lockdowns and flattening imaginary curves. They lie about vaccines. They lie about each other. They lie about Trump. They lie about Putin. They lie about Ukraine. They lie about biolabs. They lie about, quote-unquote, the science. They lie about the people protesting lockdowns and vax passes. And they all resort to violence and fraud to keep their lies going. And above all, they don't care about the people they're supposed to be governing. In fact, they lie about them, too. You know, the racists, the misogynists, the extreme right-wingers. They're all just a fringe minority, as if that should even be a factor when it comes to individual rights and freedom. Our politicians give the term lying in state a whole new meaning. <laughs> Seems to me that part of the moral hesitancy I see when people talk about controversial issues and conflicts has a lot to do with their understanding of the nature and morality of the use of force, and most importantly, about the relationship of force to individual rights. So let's be clear about one immutable principle. To have a right to something, including your own life and property, means that you have the right to use force against anyone attempting to deprive you of what is yours by right. Now, as a society, we've delegated some of the rights to retaliate to our governments so as to place that force under some objective standard of justice. But consider the moral ambivalence and confusion. Killing someone in self-defense is rarely referred to as being something good or right, but it is always considered justifiable. Why is that? Well, because when it comes down to a person's life itself or to one's own survival, it's either you defending yourself or the other guy attacking you and letting him kill you. And if you do that so you won't be guilty of killing someone yourself, well, that's called making a sacrifice. And it's immoral because in so doing, you've allowed evil to win over the good. Sacrifice is always about sacrificing the good to the evil, about giving up a greater value for a lesser value. 
Otherwise, it wouldn't be called a sacrifice. And in the fuzzy world of libertarianism, for example, the issue of the justifiable use of force boils down to the difference between someone who initiates its use to violate the right of another and someone who defensively uses force to prevent that violation. But what happens when the thief or murderer gets away with his crime at the immediate time that it was committed? I mean, it's too late to use defensive force. Enter the third dimension of force, the one that matters most to the body politic, and that is retaliatory force, which is the primary nature of the force that we delegate to governments. And in the administration of what we call justice, governments deal in the use of retaliatory force. That's why we have courts and police. So justice is all about retaliatory force, not initiatory, nor simply defensive. And this is an extraordinarily fundamental principle, established in our childhoods. Take, for example, two kids, Johnny and Mary. Johnny hit me first, shouts Mary, and justifying her hitting Johnny. But Mary took my toy away from me, retorts Johnny, in justifying his action. So who started this conflict? Is it always the person who uses physical force first? Or is it the person who committed an injustice first? Now, I experience this dilemma regularly when my two youngest twin grandkids spend an overnight stay with Grandpa. So how do I usually resolve their argument? <laughs> I don't. I let them resolve it themselves, but I generally won't put up with any actual physical fighting because, well, there's just too many breakables in my apartment. But I won't pick sides or administer any justice quote-unquote, either. The problem with my getting involved in their fight is that by doing so, and especially at their young age, I wouldn't be saying this about adults, they'll never learn how to settle arguments on their own. And worse, I would probably be seen to be taking sides and prolonging whatever it was they're arguing about, which they usually can't even remember 10 minutes after the fact. So the question that begs to be asked is, do we just allow injustices to go unchecked because we've got some kind of libertarian notion that the person who initiates the use of force is always the one guilty of the injustice? Think about it. Every act of retaliation has a history behind it, which I suppose is why a firm grasp of history is most helpful in determining the justice or injustice of a given situation. And to drive that point home, here's Greg Reese of InfoWars enlightening us on the history of bioweapons, something that might be useful to know about given the realities of Ukraine. The first nation to successfully weaponize and mass produce deadly pathogens was Great Britain during the start of World War II, soon followed by the United States, Germany, France, and Japan. While many nations mass produced them, Japan was notorious for deploying biological weapons killing almost a half a million Chinese soldiers and civilians in several military campaigns, including the 1940 bombing of Ningbo, China, when Japan's secret bioweapons unit 731 dropped ceramic bombs full of living fleas carrying the bubonic plague. German pharmaceutical company IG Farben Bayer conducted fatal human experiments on prisoners and killed over a million people with its cyanide-based Zyklon B. The U.S. established their own bioweapons program at Fort Detrick, Maryland in 1942, and by the end of the war, 
brand new facilities were completed for mass production of anthrax and other bioweapons. After the war, the directors of IG Farben were punished at the Nuremberg trials, but the scientists were secretly absorbed into America's bioweapons program. Japan was planning to attack the city of San Diego, California with weaponized plague, but they surrendered three weeks prior to the scheduled attack. And while Japanese researchers arrested by Soviet forces were tried for war crimes, those captured by the United States were secretly given immunity in exchange for working with the U.S. bioweapons team. Long after World War II, the U.S. bioweapons program continued to expand with the help of Japanese and German war criminals. And in 1969, the U.S. government officially terminated their offensive biological weapons program, continuing on with a defensive biological weapons program, which was nothing more than a change of language ahead of the Biological Weapons Convention in 1972. The U.S. would continue to experiment with and produce deadly pathogens, but now under the guise of defense, and mostly defense against Russia. Of all the nations involved in bioweapons research, Russia factors in very little. The U.S. government claims that the Soviet Union had the biggest bioweapons program in history, but this is based solely on a mysterious 1979 anthrax leak and the lone testimony of Soviet defector Ken Alibek, who has also been absorbed into the U.S. bioweapons program and who has helped the U.S. surround Russia with dangerous bioweapons labs. Russia is now releasing confiscated documents of the work that was being conducted in the NATO-backed biolabs they have secured in Ukraine. These labs were allegedly developing genetically engineered bioweapons to target specific Slavic people and experimenting with ways of spreading pathogens via bats, ticks, lice, and fleas like the work Japan's Unit 731 was doing before being secretly brought into the U.S. Meanwhile, Bill Gates is currently allowed to release hundreds of millions of genetically modified mosquitoes within the United States as some sort of disease control experiment. You can say what you want about Vladimir Putin in Russia, but they aren't the ones waging war against the people of the West. That would be the World Economic Forum, the big banks, and their lackeys of the Great Reset agenda. After the U.S. government sanctioned all the Russian people, Putin responded by only targeting a few known criminals of the Great Reset cabal, as if sending a message to the Americans that we share the same enemies. Whereas the global elites are working towards destroying the nation-states, Russia is reinventing the nation-state. Russia hopes to be the world's biggest producer of organic farming, while the globalists are pushing for genetically modified foods, bugs, and synthetic meat. The globalists are actively destroying the family down to the mother's womb, while Russia seeks to build a society based on family and Christian values. The Russian government provides fallout shelters for the civilian population to potentially survive a nuclear war. And the U.S. government has absolutely nothing for the people. We are on our own. But FEMA reminds us to remain socially distanced 
while our government robs us blind and starts a nuclear war. Reporting for InfoWars, this is Greg Reese. Hit and Ice. Ice is the code name for the new Russian super spy who's Nikki Hit, new nemesis. Enemy from the east, a new Cold War. Cold War, yes. But though Hit and Ice are rivals, their sexual attractions. What? Nuclear fire! Silly. <laughs> I uh, have to admit, you are not at all what I expected. You thought I'd be like that Hit. Yeah. That is old Russia. I am do Russia. <laughs> Isn't that our suspect? What a coincidence. The detective friends didn't have much luck questioning him. I wonder if we can do better. Oh, maybe we should leave it alone. Maybe we shouldn't interfere, but... Hello! Who are you? Hey, pick up book, young man. This here is Richard Castle, one of the great mystery writers of our time, and he has a few questions for you about the murder of Gregory Meskin. Ah, get lost, Ivan. If the cops can't touch me, what are you guys going to do? Ah, diplomatic immunity. It is like a soft fur coat that keeps you warm and cozy in America. But, my friend, Russian justice plays by different rules. What is Russian justice? Oh, how should I describe this? Oh, yes. When you're in the beach next month, you might wake up on the beach without your feet. Okay. How the hell did you get Jurgen to talk? Vasily helped him see the value of honesty. What can I say? I'm a people's person. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I just wanted to take a moment to address a brief comment recently made by the infamous Klaus Schwab that has been making the rounds on dozens of various blog shows and social media sites. But so far, I haven't really heard anyone identify the real significance of his statement. Give a listen. What pleasure to be together again. And to design the future. We are here to develop the great narrative, a story for the future. In order to shape the future, you have first to imagine the future, you have to design the future, and then you have to execute. Here, I think the next two days, we will look how we imagine, how we decide, how we execute the great narratives, how we define the story of our world for the future. Notice how Schwab offered no specifics about his future story, and note the key words he used repeatedly, narrative, stories, and future. That's the formula used by all collectivist dictators. At some point in the future, they all promise, we'll get our heavenly reward for the sacrifices asked of us today. From Hitler to Stalin to every despot the world has ever known, their essential narratives were all the same. Some promise future reward for your misery in the present. And most people don't even live long enough 
to reach that promised future. But in reality, ends and means are always the same. If the means of achieving the end is sacrifice, then the ends are also a perpetual sacrifice, and the promised rewards never materialize, because there aren't any. Sacrifice is both the means and the end. But the fraud is even worse than that. Life exists only in the present, not in the past, nor in some imagined or never imagined future. The future is always the future, and in spinning narratives about imagining, designing, and executing the future, Schwab is essentially describing a permanent dictatorship, not much different in principle from the one in which we live now. This is why freedom and capitalism are so much hated by futurist collectivists. The ends and means under freedom are the same. Once you live in a free society, you've reached your destination. It's certainly clear that Klaus is acutely aware of the importance of the narrative, because he knows that's all he has. COVID has all been a narrative without substance. The dangers of climate change have all been a narrative. The war in Ukraine is a narrative. What an outrageous and contradictory future they are promising. You'll own nothing and be happy. And this they have the gall to call stakeholder capitalism. Capitalism is all about ownership and free markets. Markets free of coercion and free from government control. Markets in which individuals can produce, sell, trade, and consume things that they own. You know, just think of any produced object. Let's say a car. There it sits, parked on the side of the road. But nobody owns it. So who gets to use it? Nobody? Everybody? Anybody see any problems with this own-nothing society yet? And in the world of Klaus Schwab, even possession does not confer ownership because there's no such thing as ownership. <laughs> now, of course, in the real world, a world without ownership, there would be no cars to own in the first place because the very production of a car requires ownership. Ownership of everything from the patents to the product itself. The future world of Klaus Schwab is not even definable using the terms that he uses. But there already exists a word to describe his future, fascism. All variants of collectivism and socialist schemes promise something for some distant reward in the future, a future that never materializes because by definition and identity alone, all collectivist schemes are disconnected from reality, from reason, and most importantly, from the nature of human beings as conscious beings with a free will. And what's interesting to note is that Vladimir Putin and Klaus Schwab are arch enemies. Putin's a nationalist while Schwab is a globalist. And right now, Ukraine is one of their battlefronts. Two weeks ago, bioweapons labs in Ukraine were a QAnon conspiracy theory. Well, now thanks to Marco Rubio and Victoria Newland, we know that they're real. But we still need a lot more details, and right now we're getting them from the Russians. According to the Russian Ministry of Defense, there's evidence that researchers in the Ukraine were working on creating special viruses that could be used to target specific ethnic groups as weapons of war or as part of a wider depopulation agenda. Well, now that doesn't mean that everything that Russia is saying is true. They're in a war, and countries at war say all kinds of untrue things. Just look at Ukraine or at our own military. But keep this in mind, until a few weeks ago, our leaders were denying that the biolabs even existed. Dr. Ariana Love says that she already knows what's really going on with these bioweapons labs, and she says that it's more horrifying than you could ever imagine. Dr. Love joins us now. So what's really going on with these labs? Is that accurate information, in your opinion, coming out of Russia? 
Yeah, absolutely. Russian reports have historically been credible. It's like old, they're old school. So as far as I, as long as I've been a journalist for 11 years, they are credible. Russia's military operation in Ukraine, it's all for the denazification and demilitarization of the country, as well as to seize control and destroy and expose the U.S. bioweapons labs to the world. So Russia is liberating the Ukrainian people after eight years of genocide and ethnic cleansing. On the other side is the U.S. deep state and NATO allies um, who have been using Ukraine for the manufacturing and exportation of biological weapons for this COVID-19 democide. Um, Russia exposed that the U.S. government, DOD, and NATO partners funded and operated 30 biolabs in Ukraine under COVID-19 prevention program. But in actuality, they were producing bioweapons that are being used in this vaccine holocaust. Where's the so proof Russia, of that? I mean, where where is the proof of that? So Russia revealed 145 species of bioweapons and have been that they have been studied in Ukraine, and two of them are crossing into Russia. This is according to Russian military reports. Parasites and insect vectors that transmit severe infectious diseases to humans were being smuggled out of Ukraine, and the biosamples were being transferred abroad from a, a, a biolab in Kharkov. So routes into Europe were already being mapped. And they were working on dangerous coronavirus specimens and how to spread it among populations. This was revealed by the Russians. So classified documents captured by the Russians reveal the paper trail between Ukrainian biolabs and the Doherty Institute in Australia. The former president, Barack Obama himself, had authorized the construction of these biolabs in Ukraine for creating level three dangerous pathogens in 2005. It was the Obama-bidden regime that established the coup d'etat in Kiev. The Azov Battalion Nazis that are wreaking havoc in Ukraine were funded by Jewish oligarch billionaires with dual nationality to Israel, such as Igor Kolomoski. Azov Nazis were supplied with Tavor rifles by the Israeli state. The neo-Nazis were able to officially integrate into the National Guard of Ukraine in 2014. Uh, former U.S. Marine Corps officer Scott Ritter told George Galloway the first troops to be trained by U.S. and British soldiers were the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. So the Nazis violently overthrew the legitimate president of Ukraine and forced their way into the government. Uh, the, the Zelensky puppet regime and the militarized Nazis have been committing war crimes atrocities and targeting Russian Christian Ukrainians. Um, ever since. And those are the majority of, of Ukrainians are Russian Christians. So what you're saying is that the United States specifically, actually not the United States, bad actors inside of the United States, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, along with the State Department and the CIA, conducted a violent overthrow of a democratically elected government that was elected in 2014. Both sides agree that the vote was fair. They staged BLM-style riots. They practiced the same meddling and election theft as they implemented here, all of the PSYOPs included, so that they could develop bioweapons to target Christians. So Barack Obama wants to target Christians. Does that sound like a huge conspiracy to anybody? I think not. And so this person who allegedly was not even born here, and I believe that more and more. I mean, the truth is the guy was born in Kenya. That's, he should have never been the president here anyways. He was selected and installed here. These people are selecting and installing governments worldwide to complete their agenda. This is Soros's war is what this is. And so now there's even more coming out. 
This is not something that just is popping up with Vladimir Putin. This is instigated at the hands of our State Department, corrupt bad actors inside of the global cabal and the deep state here in the United States. From the very beginning, I said, if you want to blame anybody for this war, look no further than the United States Absolutely. deep state. And that's And the accurate. Ukrainians, the poor Ukrainians have been suffering for years. It is a genocide. Um, the U.S. government released documents in 2020 admitting that the biolabs in Ukraine are for vaccine development. And the U.S. Department of State had control over everything that happened in those labs. Russia revealed that the U.S. was developing plague, anthrax, cholera, Ebola, filoviruses, and much, much more. Ebola is in the Johnson & Johnson and Sinovax patents. The filovirus is used in Moderna. So it's clear that the illegal pathogens from these biolabs have been used to inoculate the world's population for this democide. We should all be thanking Russia for exposing this to the world and destroying those labs. You have no business here, Captain. Mr. Oberyn, are you aware that Sergei has been selling Russian trade secrets? Captain, this is a Russian matter. But he killed Grigory just... And it is a Russian matter. If you will excuse me, I have a plane to catch. I've been recalled to Moscow where I shall pay a small fine and begin my retirement. A fine? That's his punishment. Would you do me a favor? Could you please tell my wife, I said, маленьких воров великих выпускают на свободу. Small thieves get hanged, great ones go free. An old Russian proverb. Mr. Oberyn, please revoke Sergei's immunity. Have him stand trial for Grigory's murder. It would set a very dangerous example. You see, Captain, uh, Russian justice is very, very complicated. Oh, here is somebody who would like to say goodbye. You two look so unhappy. This breaks my heart. You're uh, leaving town, same plane as Sergei? Yes. Nine hours to Moscow. <laughs> but plenty of time to work on our hit and ice collaboration, yes? In fact, I have an idea for the ending. Vasily, I don't know. It Vasily. goes like this. Nikki Hit and James Rock think the evil Russian has gotten away. What they don't know is Vladimir Ice has set in motion a plan to send the murderer to live out the rest of his miserable life at the lonely Russian outpost in Omnicon. I've heard of that town. That's the coldest place on Earth. It takes four days to warm the ground with bonfire before they can bury their dead. Is that where Sergei is headed? In Russia, there are far worse places than prison. Like I said, Russian justice is very complicated. Come here. <laughs> this was fun, no? Yeah. We do it again sometimes. Call first. <laughs> yeah, call first. One of my favorite episodes of Castle. And the actor who played Basili Deroff, Nick E. Tarabe, pulled off a great performance, both appealing to Russian stereotypes as seen by Westerners and by shattering them as well. And of course, the reality is something else again. So I hope that today we've perhaps at least made a dent in the hate the Russians narratives being spun by our own governments and mass media. And finally, 
We have been told repeatedly that Ukraine is a democracy and that democracy is what must be defended by the West's getting involved in siding with, of all things, the neo-Nazis that Putin is fighting. Yeah, I know, Ukraine held elections, but elections alone do not a democracy make, and the last one that everyone agreed was fair was overturned by the neo-Nazis and their Western allies. And of course, now, opposing political parties in Ukraine are banned. And not by Putin, we should all note clearly. But the idea that we can free countries by turning them into democracies is an illusion. It's kind of a catch-22. Because we cannot achieve a free society through what we call democracy. We become a democracy only by first being a free society. You know, people never vote themselves out of tyranny. They always vote themselves into tyranny. And if I'm wrong about that, could someone please provide me with an example of any vote that ever led towards freedom? It's never happened in my lifetime. Shouldn't that tell us something? And the reason this is so is because freedom's not an option and not possible with the ideologies of the variant collectivist parties in our parliaments, legislatures, and houses of representatives. And on that note, just before wrapping up today's show, I happened to get a quick glance at last Sunday's Alex Jones show that really went down the proverbial rabbit hole. And at this time, I have no way of verifying any of this, but according to Jones, Putin has put out the warning that the deep state, you know, our deep state, may assassinate Joe Biden to trigger the war that they all want so badly. And when Jones went through that scenario, it was chillingly plausible. And what a great excuse for starting that war they all want so bad, by blaming anything that happens in the U.S. on the same people they blame everything on. The Russians. That's one conclusion that they are always Russian to. So just a heads up on that particular conspiracy theory. So I guess we've reached the point in the show where we will have to be Russian along now. And here's hoping that you will be Russian to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Alright, gentlemen. The first thing is, I don't want you to be discouraged by the complexity of the Russian language. All I want you to do is learn a few essential words. Now, the first word we're going to learn is tovarish, which means friend. It's an obvious way to greet someone. Okay? Now let me hear you repeat it. Tovarish. Very good. Well, hi, Schultz. My name. Hello. Now. What, 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 what are you doing? I'm learning a little Russian. Goodbye. <laughs> Schultz, what's your hurry? It wouldn't hurt you to learn a little Russian, you know. What for? Well, I mean, suppose they liberate Stalag 13 before the Americans. The they are coming? Could be. Goodbye. <laughs> All right. Who told you? Oh, that's a professional secret. I'm sorry. I can't. Uh-huh. You have a radio hidden. You were listening to broadcast. You know it is forbidden. If the commandant finds out, you all go to the cooler. What did the radio say to me? <laughs> Allies are winning on all fronts. All right. Now, the next two words are... Da and yet, meaning yes and no. Now, let me hear you say yes and no in Russian. Da. da. 